I'm not a revenue generator, but I'm a revenue driver. But often that needs a lot of education across the company. So it really comes down to, do you have an enablement charter? Do you have an enablement strategy? Like, are you really building something or are you just the fire department to run after any fire that comes your way to put that up? The Bridge is a podcast for all businesses where the consumer purchase takes place at a physical location, but those same consumers are shopping and narrowing their choices down online. That jump from online to in-store is where most businesses struggle. Each episode, we will focus on real strategies and examples from industry experts on how to dominate this complex and competitive environment by sharing the latest trends in technology and process. In this episode... We chat with Irina Soriano, Head of Enablement at Seismic. As the recognized leader in enablement, Seismic unites marketers and sellers in delivering the most compelling buyer experiences, empowering businesses to tell their best stories. Irina joins Andy and I to talk about what sales enablement is, why it's important to be intentional about getting it spun up in small to medium-sized businesses, and how to properly measure ROI as you build value for your organization. Let's jump right into the call. We have a very exciting episode of The Bridge. I've got Muhammad here with me. Hey, Muhammad. Hello, everyone. We have Irina Soriano. She is head of enablement at Seismic. Seismic is the global leader in sales enablement. Uh, they provide what they consider to be one of the smartest storytelling platforms offered in the world. I know this is a, a kind of a, a newer space for some of our marketers. And, and while they might understand sales enablement, they might not have gone to the depth of the level as they would have, say, in some other marketing disciplines. So while talking a little bit about your background, can you also talk a little bit about what sales enablement does? Sure. So let me start with that. So, you know, a, a very brief definition of what sales enablement is or could be. Obviously, there's many different ones out there. So it's really the strategic use of people, processes, and technology at the same time to improve sales productivity and increase revenue. So really, simply speaking, is that's what it is. So I'm sure that a lot of your listeners would go right now, oh, yeah, that sounds familiar. We're already doing that, but they might have not named it sales enablement per se. So for myself, for the, the last 12 years, I've built global enablement functions, be it for professional services company from small range, startup size, 150 people, all the way to, to large enterprise settings as well. I've been in the SaaS world for a while and I, I was based in, in EMEA. I lived in Paris and in London. I was in Asia Pacific for five years in Singapore and I'm now based in New York so I'm in the U.S. I've been particularly passionate about building new enablement and learning and, and, and operational initiatives from scratch. And I'm currently serving as the head of enablement at Seismic. And uh, I moved over to the Seismic site with the Percolate acquisition. So I also build and let global enablement um, supporting our entire go-to-market function. So all the teams that are customer-facing and Percolate before. And before I moved into the enablement world, I'm a salesperson at heart. Um, I've been an individual seller, so you know I kind of know what that means, and I've also run larger sales teams of fifty plus. I think what's interesting too, given your role and and who doesn't want to improve sales uh, productivity and revenue, how would you say your ability to be great at the current role and and head of enablement has been a byproduct of your experience in selling? 
I think if you're running sales enablement, like having been in sales, it just comes with that credibility. So I've been a BDR. I picked up the phone a thousand times and got hung up on. You know, I've been selling and working six months on a deal and then it fell through and my life and blood was in that deal. Like I've sat through all of that. I sold into smaller companies. I sold global and enterprise accounts. So I think just generally knowing just also mentally what people go through in a role like that. That's just really critical. If I'm now putting myself in a position and I say, I'm training you, I'm coaching you, I'm teaching you, you know, different skills on how to negotiate on how to close a deal. Like, how would I be able to do that if I actually haven't done the job myself? So now we're talking specifically sales enablement. You know, I'm in a, in a fortunate role where I can enable the entire go-to-market suite. So starting with marketing, sales, customer success, and channel, and our partners as well. And I haven't been in all of those roles myself, right? So I come from a classic sales career, but the people on my team have been. So again, this is like coming in and bringing you know, the, the experience and the background. So, you know, the person on our team that works with the CS team, like understands the different roles and the dynamics of a customer success team. And that's just really important. So, you know, I think really at the core, that's what it gets down to. And, and a lot of the people listening will be in, you know, small, medium-sized businesses, storefront, probably smaller teams, maybe not dedicated functions, for example, the sales enablement, um, using one of the examples. But I, I'm curious, where do you see S&B struggling? And, and what are some best practices that really can help them out as they try to incorporate some of these sales enablement worlds? So I can talk about that first hand because I've been in those settings. When you build or set up an enablement ecosystem, say in an enterprise versus a small or medium-sized business, you're just dealing with a lot of different dynamics. Actually, one of the advantages being in a smaller setting also means that you can get things done much faster than when you're sitting in a, in a large enterprise, right? So if you do this for the first time, like if you move into an enablement role for the first time, I would almost say a better setting is to go to an SMB because it's, a lot of things might be, might be easier. But talking a bit about the struggles here, so... Personally, I think the biggest struggle is always budget. So for me, in enablement, that really means two things. So one is the budget to hire and to grow the enablement team, right? We know that a lot of the enablement practitioners are start by themselves. Maybe they don't even have the official title enablement or sales enablement, but they're kind of already doing it. Like we just yeah. haven't labeled it in the organization. And then the second piece is the budget to buy technology. And let's face it, like, my job is pretty rough if I can't buy technology. <laughs> it's hard. So, you know, we just really have to, first of all, we have to ask for, for things more. There needs to be more of a plan behind it, right? And we just have more restrictions. So if I'm in a small setting and I go ask the CFO for budget, yeah, I have to make sure I have a strong business case here, right? So let's let's look at both of them. Let's say I want budget to hire. My goal should always be I don't want to be the only enablement practitioner. I want to grow my team, right? It's tough to support an entire organization. You want to make sure you have at least one or two people that you can work with here, right? So the goal is always that you want to show what ROI you're providing to the organization, right? Otherwise, how are they going to invest in me? Why are they going to bring on another person like me if I can't show that I impacted things that ultimately impact revenue. So I'm not a revenue generator, but I'm a revenue driver. But often that needs a lot of education across the company. 
So it really comes down to, do you have an enablement charter? Do you have an enablement strategy? Like, are you really building something or are you just the fire department to run after any fire that comes your way to put that up? So that's the hiring piece. And then when it comes to technology, you know, you have to make a business case. You can't just go randomly shopping and then ask for money. You need to understand why do we need technology? What is it for? What is it going to impact? How is it going to make people's lives easier, especially in the sales world, right? Like, how can this make us more revenue if we bring in technology? And unless you're doing that, I think it's very tough to get budget approval. So that's really the biggest thing. Otherwise, in a lot of ways, when you build this from scratch, you're in a smaller setting, you can move things much faster, you know, that you might need less approval. There's less of an approval chain that you have to go through to bring new things in the organization. Double down on one of the things you just mentioned there around metrics and, and, and ROI. You know, from a sales name perspective, you mentioned really that being a function that supports the sales team, the marketing team, product teams, that sort of thing, right? And from a sales perspective, definitely, you know, the primary metric is going to always be dollars. How much did you sell? Followed by maybe how much pipeline have you built? In marketing, many marketing teams are going to have uh, similar functions if they're that tightly tied into sales, where their metric really is how much uh, value did I bring from a revenue perspective to that sales team or to that organization? And, and you know, in, in many ways in marketing, a lot of times there's a direct correlation of tracking, of tagging, of deals and things like that, of advertising channels, of offer codes, those sorts of things. In sales enablement, as you're trying to get close to that idea of the ROI of that individual or that small team or even large team, how do you measure the ROI of sales enablement? What's that, what's that metric you're looking for if you're just getting started? That's a big question. You'll probably be here for the next three hours. <laughs> Let's diving go. into detail with this. <laughs> so I'm going to give you the easy answer. Okay. So it, it's never that easy. We don't sell. Okay. So we impact things that impact revenue. Now, the key here is really we want to show like what our specific effort has impacted, right? So it, it has to be relevant and it kind of comes down to what is the specific project you're working on? What's the specific initiative? What's the specific enablement service that you're rolling out? So I'll give you an example. Let's say you start with you building out like a high complex, high end onboarding program for your sales team, right? Which is kind of like the necessary evil. If I was then to say, okay, let me measure ROI on how we're cutting cycle time in the next six months. That really has nothing to do with each other. So you're not going to impact cycle time if you're bringing in new folks with a high-end onboarding program that you've built. I would rather want to look at ramp. So if your company has defined ramp, they might not. So that's the starting point where you want to go. Sure. I want to look at how have we, and those are like the two magic words, as you say, you know, executives being about dollars, right? How have I increased or how have I decreased X? That's what I'm after. So I might be in this particular case, I might be looking at how have we decreased RAM time, right? By X amount of days, knowing what our RAM time was prior to the new hires going through the program that you build and what's the RAM time after. So that's like just a classic example I'm giving you. So it really comes down to what's the initiative, what's the project, and what are you actually impacting with that? And that to me is where the fine line really comes in, right? Making sure that you know these efforts will impact a certain measurement I can take, right? And then you track this over time. And the 
there's, two, there's one difficulty here, right? So a lot of the the classic enablement services, like I said, the the onboarding, like your even a, a competency based hiring, which you probably want to have in place if you're building onboarding as well to make sure you bring in the right people in the door, like a continuous based skill development, those things, at, you track them over time. So. The goal is always with enablement efforts to build out long-lasting enablement services that you track over a longer period of time. And you might want to compare one year to the next year. And then you have ad hoc situational enablement that happens with there's a competitive threat. We have a new product. We're entering a new market. We're opening a new shop. Anything that just happens where people have to be enabled in a short period of time, that ROI you can usually measure right after. You know, you said a lot of the folks that might be listening, they might have stores or shops that's like B2C type business setup. Those are things you can actually measure pretty quickly. So there's no universal answer. I'd love to give you one, Mohammed, but it really comes down to what particularly you're looking at. Just those are some things to take into consideration here. You mentioned inside of there kind of enablement services um, and that, that kind of word, right? Can you just uh, define that for me? So when I say enablement services for me, and I before I said like the necessary evil, that's the stuff is when you build enablement, like you want to make sure those things are there. So I'm making sure we bring our people on board the right way. We're giving them the best possible experience and we give them all the knowledge and the skills that they need to be successful in our organization. And then also, what are we then delivering after six months, 12 months, 18 months? And as we progress them into other roles, everything which is skill focused. So with service, I really mean it's ongoing, it's okay. repeatable, and it's scalable. And then this might run on a monthly basis, it might run on a quarterly basis, but it's almost like a service offering that we're giving our organization. Right. And we run the same thing every month or every quarter, right? like your onboarding boot camp, or we, after six months, we might offer a negotiation course, right? Mm-hmm. Or we might say, Hey, after, you know, right after onboarding, we put them through a three-day methodology training, whatever that might be. But those are the things that we re-deliver. We collect feedback, we make them better, we build them out, obviously. Those are the things that happen on a regular basis. And when I say situational enablement ad hoc, that's usually us responding to a, to a change. Some shape, new product, new store, new competitor, new something. And then there's obviously a different degree of impact that this might have on us or the organization. The big competitive threat, then you might have to enable really quickly here. So those are like the two things that I I see a little bit differently when you think about just building like baseline enablement for your organization. I'm a go-getter at at a a multi-location retail business. I'm understanding of how to start to generate an ROI. And I'm looking across, and I get that I've got some baseline collateral. Maybe we haven't done a lot in terms of enablement. Where's a good place to start? I'd probably split this up into new hires and existing hires as well. Like, what can we make sure for the people that come through the door? And I hate to say it, but if you're not bringing them on the right way, you're already creating a bad experience right out of the gate. And we know that if people leave or, or, or you were to exit them within the first three to six months, that cost you 125% roughly of their annual salary. So there's a lot of cost involved with us. We're talking here, small companies or even mid-sized companies. It's very important to make sure that you give people a good start and you make sure they can get successful. So that's one piece. If I would say you, you don't really have anything structured, like make sure your people have a good start when they come into your organization. 
And then the second piece is for existing employees as well. And, you know, let's just talk specifically just about sales. So everything around, you know, baseline for me is, do you have a wild, wild west sales for? Or do you have a little bit of structure, right? Every company is going to hit a point where they say, okay, we need a little bit of process here. So having a solid sales process in place, have a buyer experience defined. And ideally, that's the kind of next step, um, have a sales methodology that people actually know, hey, this is how we sell here. You know, at this organization, like at Seismic, for example, we follow a value selling approach when it comes to our methodology. We have defined price process, we have defined buyer experience. It's just, it's easier to, you know, bring people on the same page and just create a little bit of structure. But then also, and this is the magic word, probably my favorite word, um, is to just instill some accountability into people. So, hey, folks, this is how we're doing this. Company ABC, right? And this is how we know we're going to successfully be doing it. We're all going to be doing it the same way. So if you got nothing and just a little bit of content, I would say those are probably the places where you, where you want to go. You talk about training and buy-in. And if we're talking, if we're kind of sticking with the sales environment, and I'm looking for those consistencies. I have the wild, wild west, but now I've got to pick our methodology out and I've got to figure out like what's our foundation or our baseline and how do we get to repeatability? How do we get to scale? How do I know that when somebody comes on board, I have something that I could sell and it's proven. When I'm doing that, am I, am I looking at my sales floor and seeing who has the best results or am I looking at just culturally what fits who we are our customer base is you know if i am i looking at the best salesperson and saying all right how do we just do what she's doing where do i look you know there's two ways how you can tackle this right you can you can talk to people and ask questions right to understand really what you ask for here is you want to see what are some of the business gaps so before you do anything first step should be that you run a gap analysis where what do i really need like not just what I think we need, but what's the field telling me that we're going to need? And there's two ways. So one is obviously that you, you sit down, you have conversations, right? And you ask smart questions and you get a feel for, hey, what are some of the trends here? If I speak with 10 of my sales managers, what are the three things that keep coming up that already gives me an indication of, hmm, okay, there might be something there. I would also always recommend to go and talk to the to the actual sellers, because the manager might have a different perspective than the seller might have, right? And ultimately, with any efforts that you do, you want to make sellers' life easier, right? If I had to explain to my grandmother what I do, I would say, hey, my job is to make sure that a seller has what they need at any point in time to be a rock star at their job. That's what I do. So if any of my efforts don't do that, I'd say don't do them. It's as simple as that. So that's one piece, right? So you can have conversation, but what people say and what people do, those are two different things. So the second piece here is that you have to go watch. You have to be on a meeting. You have to be in the action while it's happening because there's one way how people tell you something and then the other way is that you're hearing it for yourself. I'm a trained coach for over 10 years. I hear things a little bit differently than you might explain them to me. So the other thing that that does is ultimately when you, and specific, specifically for people that step into an enablement role, you need to, one, build credibility with the seller. 
fragrance. You could buy in from the therapist just into you as a person and running like structured coaching session with people and giving them some constructive and positive input into some of the things they do. That also allows you at the same time to build relationships while you really get an idea what's going on. So, you know, the that piece takes quite a bit of time, especially when you step into a new organization and you don't really know what the deal is yet, you know, and I would caution everybody to just run through that period fast. I would just take a bit more time to really make sure that you understand, hey, what are the gaps? And then align with what did I hear? And then really pick out some of the common themes and trends. And then ultimately align this with your executive team as well before you put anything in. Right? So you want to make sure you have buy-in from the highest level as well before you go and execute. So one of the things we have to do is we have to be really great communicators and connectors. Right? So our role is always to make sure everybody is on the same page before we start kicking something off or rolling something out. What you also just alluded to is that by getting on the ground floor, by being and immersing yourself into the sales process, the salespeople are going to see that. And, and when it comes to the output, whatever it is that that's, gets created as a byproduct of that, that should help with some, some buying and that should help with some accepting of this person who's telling me how to do my job better or saying the things that I should be saying. What are, what are some other best practices in terms of getting buy-in and acceptability? I think there's a couple of pieces here. Like the really the big thing with anything new you're doing, right? And particularly now, considering the current situation, we always have to think outside of the box. Like we have to be even more innovative with the things we do. And that requires a lot of change management and a lot of buy-in that we need. So one thing that I think is, is very powerful, and we're doing that at Seismic as well, and you can do this in any size organization, small, large. And I always found this was one of the most successful things when rolling out either new things or new program, new technology, whatever it might be, is to have an enablement team of champions, champions or advocates, however you want to call them, yep. um, that sit across the different audiences that you enable. Right? If it's only sales, then you would pick sellers from the field. If you're enabling, you know, like myself, the marketing, the CS and the partner teams as well, you would pick people from those teams as well. And ideally folks that have, that sit in different roles, right? So you want to have a BDR, you want to have one of your most experienced sellers. So you kind of want to sprinkle it out a little bit. So you get a whole range of background, experience, diversity, right? You want to make sure you have people from different regions. If that's the type of setup that you have, so make it as diverse as possible. And that's really the group that, so we're pulling in early for any project that we're doing, any new project, any new initiative, any new enablement service for feedback. So we involve those guys in building this out, same as if we were to roll out a new piece of technology. Those are like our champions, the first early adopters. Those are the folks we can pilot with if we want to. And those are also the people that go out there and then spread the positive word. So they share the win stories that we have from anything new that we introduce in the organization. And the goal is that you pick people that are successful, you know, to, to their best ability, depending on the type of role that they're in. But people that others also look up to. Because if I'm somebody in an organization who's top seller, I've been doing really well in consecutive years. And then I start talking about how the new sales process helped me to like create a better buyer experience, close more deals or whatever that might be. People will believe. They will believe. So 
you know, it's all about the creating that dynamic and creating that movement using wind stories from people that others look up to. And like that to me is really the biggest piece. And the, the piece that's connected to it, like I mentioned, is obviously making sure the communication, right? You talk about some of the great things that happen or the stories that people can tell based on the new skill they learned or the new methodology they put into place or whatever that might be. So coming back to storytelling and how powerful it is, there you go. Telling a good story just pulls people along. And that's if you do this with a prospect and a customer, if you do this with your internal audience to create buy-in. You hear a great story, you buy into something. That's huge. And we always love to skip those parts that really actually make us go much faster if we just take a couple steps back and slow down and really empower some other individuals in the organization to to really help us push those things along. Okay, so so now I'm in a spot where I'm, I'm being highly successful in some baseline processes, some initial collateral, and I'm really kind of moving with enablement. I've got some teams that are training, and now I'm starting to see some areas that I want to improve. Where's the, where's the line between art and science in knowing something's right, absent data? I think what it definitely comes down to experience. That's the easy answer here. If I think back to when I did this for the first time, I was in the same situation that probably a lot of listeners are currently in or have been in before. I moved into this role and I got no clue what was going on. If you're somebody new in this role and you, which a lot of us are, and you don't have the background, like I had a wonderful person at my side who knew how to do all of these things. So that's where I learned from in the beginning, right? And then ultimately, you know, the, the tricky bit is an enablement that there's not, I mean, there's a lot of now enablement people out there, but it's not a lot of people that have a lot of experience out there. So the whole piece around how do I learn how to do things, like who can I go and ask a question? And the one thing that I'm always going to say is that you have to leverage the enablement community. Those are the people to learn from. Like if I see it, how many just strangers would approach me and say, can you help me with this? You know, my first answer is, of course, like, you know, call me at the end of my day and I can help you get this ready and set this up. Like, and I lo- I know a lot of my peers are doing the same thing. It's like, you need to go out there and learn from others that have done it before. It's, yeah. you know, this job is really learning by doing, but that would be probably my biggest advice, like to be out there and get pro- you get your experience from others and steal, steal, steal. Anything you find that you can use, just steal it, take it, make it yours, and then give it back to somebody else when they come to <laughs> and ask you about it, right? That's how this whole thing goes. Definitely how we all learn. I know if I back up a little bit to one of your uh, prior topics here, you mentioned about the order of going in and identifying gaps. And you started with that idea of going in and interviewing, interviewing the sales managers, interviewing the salespeople, surfacing those common issues that are, are shared across the group. I think from experience, what you see in those types of situations is a lot of the big things pop up immediately. You can solve those issues. You can gain some credibility and gain some trust by solving things that they have already identified as, as, as problems for them. And then you're going to that stage maybe of getting in the field and listening in the calls or sitting down with people or casually observing as they're working a deal or consulting with a customer. And then you're identifying things on your own that you're bringing to them as solutions, but you've already built the trust by giving them something that they were solving a problem that they already knew was a need. So I definitely loved that. And I want to dig into the second piece that you talked about as well, which is this need for community and the idea that you may not have another sales enablement person who can answer the questions for you in there right there in your organization. I think that's very, very real. And I know that 
you are also involved with another organization outside of Seismic, Wise, a Women mm-hmm. in Sales Enablement there in the New York chapter, which I know is a community of that sort of value. Can we just pop out of the store right for a minute and just yeah, t- yeah. talk about the idea of community and sales enablement? If you are searching for a local chapter or a local group of people who are like-minded, what should you be expecting out of something like that? So I can talk first a little bit about WISE to, to paint the picture and then talk just about the community in general. So so WISE, as you write, stands for Women in Sales Enablement, right? So the goal here really is to bring professional women with a common interest together, right, for professional and for personal growth. And that happens in an environment that's full of trust, right? We get mm-hmm. together on a monthly basis. And WISE was really founded by, by a handful of amazing women to promote like authentic connections amongst women with similar interests and also similar challenges in the field of mm-hmm. enablement or sales enablement. And, you know, the third of inclusion there is essential to really achieve the overall goals. And obviously, we get a lot of requests from new people joining. Like we have a, a chapter group, a LinkedIn group, that people can come in where we promote like next events and when we get together. And then we have regular calls with our chapter leads as well that sit across the U.S. to make sure we can, you know, keep it fresh, like brainstorm mm-hmm. on how we can keep the meetings fun. The thing is, is now we, we have a lot of new people that come randomly in and sometimes I have people approach me that sit in different locations in the U.S. and then I usually point them to their local chapter. Talking about the community in general, like, quite frankly, for me, this is all about giving back. If you take, 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 you're not giving anything back, but we all have something to give. This might be the smallest thing, right? And you can do this by writing a blog post or hopping on a call with somebody and just <laughs> give them some insight. I've just done two today. And it, you know, it randomly happens throughout my day or I do it in my free time, but it's just the, the whole spirit of hey, we're in this together. This is a pretty cool space to be in and we can shape it and build it together. For me, that's, you know, and people that, that work on my team, they know that's my expectation out of them is you giving back. Otherwise, what are we doing? Yeah. So true. A couple awesome. of thoughts here. I think it just matters a lot. Leading into the last question, you talked about seeing some of these great ideas. I'm curious, what's any any tips of the trade, any any tools you've seen during a time like this where basically everything is virtual? Well, that's a tough one. So some of the things that I found useful is just to, especially when you use virtual techniques, to just mix it up. Do something fun. Like we put like little games into team meetings where people know, okay, it's not just another thing talking about what I'm up to next week. Changing the time, right? Not do happy hour, maybe do lunch or a breakfast. So just being respectful of the Zoom fatigue, and then also that a lot of folks, have, you know, have kids at home now. They are homeschooled, right? It's like just different life dynamics that all of a sudden come into play. Like one other thing that we've done that I thought was a really great idea, and it, and it worked out really well. My team has done an amazing job to put this into practice. Is that we set up a, a win from home competition. <laughs> for our sales teams, for our BDS and for our outside sellers. And this was really about putting certain KPIs and things we measured in place, how they were like supporting and helping customers and prospects and how they were giving back to the community as well, to the enablement community. And that was really fun. Like that, that was a cool prize, post-pandemic prize. And it just kind of 
brought people together, creative motivation. Like it, it made people talk to each other, not just about the normal deal stuff, but hey, how are we going to win this thing? So I think sometimes little things like that, thinking outside of the box can just, you know, just motivate people. That's great. Keep it fresh. Keep it fun. Listen, this has been fantastic. We've really appreciated you joining us. Thank you for joining us for another episode of The Bridge. If you liked what you heard, be sure to jump into the conversation online by following The Bridge Pod hashtag on LinkedIn. And as always, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks and stay well.